If you like what you're listening to, support this podcast on Patreon. Patreon.com, search Phil Dawson, or find a link in the show notes and join up. It's very much appreciated. Thank you for listening. Chapter 29, Mana and Artifice. The assistant announced Harbin's arrival to the Lord High Artificer and protector of the combined kingdoms of Arviv, Corlys Yosha. Harbin did not wait for Urza to respond, but was in the room already, hot on the assistant's heels, not giving his father a chance to send him away. Father, you must see me, said the younger man. And see you I do, returned Urza, pushing his glasses back up on the bridge of his nose. He nodded to the assistant, and the young girl retreated to her own studies. Harbin looked at his father. Urza was leaner now, and his frame had taken on an almost bird-like quality. His hair was snow-white and had receded to expose most of his careworn brow. He wore his spectacles all the time now, not just when working. He looked old and tired. You've read my preliminary report, sir said Harbin, politely but without preamble. Yes, said Urza, patting the small stack of papers. And I must say that you were fortunate. The storms of the southeast have shattered boats and sent good men to the bottom. Both your mother and your wife were beside themselves with worry. I trust you have seen them and reassured them. I sent word to them, father, but came here first, said Harbin. Urza looked at the young man, surprised, then nodded. You found something beyond the storms, he said. An island, said Harbin. More than an island, a huge landmass to the south and east of Corlys, heavily forested, but I noted from aloft there were huge mountains as well, as big as the Kerr Ridges. I kept multiple sightings on my return, and even given the storms, I think we could find it again. Urza said nothing, but merely ground his palms together, slowly. There's enough lumber to, to launch an armada of ornithopters against the enemy, and enough ore within those mountains to make new legions of Avengers, continued Harbin. The young man's face was alight with possibilities. This is the chance to tip the battle in our favor for once. Urza held his silence, and his eyebrow furrowed. Harbin said, Sir, have I said something wrong? Urza's eyebrows rose, and he shook his head. Harbin wondered where his father's thoughts were while he talked. Instead, Urza said, Harbin, what is it like flying back to Penrigan? Harbin thought for a moment. It was unremarkable, sir. "'What did you see of the land while you were aloft?' asked the older man. Harbin shrugged. "'Mines, factories, farms, towers, outposts, nothing out of the ordinary.' "'Hmm,' said Urza. "'Nothing out of the ordinary. Argiv was once a land of rolling hills and manor house estates. Did you know that?' "'I know the histories, sir,' said Harbin. Histories that I was alive for. Corliss was covered with forests, though now not a tree stands between its capital and the coast. Yosha was an open territory of fertile fields. Now its fields are barren, and the sword marches is a plain of blackened glass. This is because of Mishra's inventions, Harbin responded quickly. His groundbreakers and Armageddon clocks. He would rather destroy the land than to give it up to you. Yes, those are the Kadir's inventions, said Urza, not even speaking his brother's name. But have I been any better with my creations? 
This land has been ripped asunder in our pursuit of resources to fight this war. There are reports from among the surviving Sardinian dwarves that burning rain falls from the sky into their land, searing the flesh and corroding any exposed mechanism. The Kadir has plundered nation after nation. Have I been any less effective in my own work? Arbin was silent for a moment, then said, This is unlike you, sir. Is there any other news I should know of? Urza let loose a small smile. Why is it everyone knows when I am troubled except me? He said and turned back toward his desk. I have been going through Ricklau's old papers. You knew him? Harbin said. He was the master of apprentices at the artifice school. Then he paused and added, I didn't know he was dead. I'm sorry. Happened while you were away, said Urza. I knew him when we were very young. He died of natural causes in his library, but still his death troubles me. Harbin said nothing. They had both become immured to the continual losses of the war, both of manpower and machines. But the passing from simple old age was something that Harbin had a hard time considering. If Ricklau had been older than his father, then he must have been very old indeed. In any event, I've been going through his personal papers and found correspondence with another old friend named Lorin. Urza tapped the thick pile of letters. She was another scholar and went to Teresia City to study when we were very, very young. Harbin thought he understood. Teresia City had fallen to enemy forces and had been sacked. Since then, it had been taken and retaken several times. If Lauren was there, she was probably dead as well. Lauren writes of some meditative techniques they were developing in the city, continued his father. They allowed the user to manipulate matter and living things, to fly, to jump great distances, to shatter objects. What do you think of that? I would find such a claim dubious, said Harbin. It was the kindest phrase he could think of. Dubious, said Urza, catching the halt in Harbin's voice. How so? Well, I find the existence of such things unlikely, said Harbin. Flying without an ornithopter? Have you ever encountered something like this? Urza was quiet for a moment, and Harbin wondered, not for the first time, what he was thinking. The older man's hand reached for the amulet that always hung around his neck. No, not exactly. Sometimes when I'm starting on a new device, there's a spark, a feeling that I get when everything falls into place. But no, no, nothing that would allow me to fly without an ornithopter. Well, then, said Harbin, if you do not think of it, it probably does not exist, sir. Urza smiled broadly. Harbin relaxed, and for the first time since he was a child, he felt comfortable with the older man. You think too highly of me, the artificer said. As any good son should, said Harbin. Urza's face clouded for a moment, and the younger man felt at once he had gone too far. Quickly, he added, if this meditative technique was valid, it didn't work against the enemy, did it? Teresia's city was sacked and burned, and all the meditation in the world did not prevent that. Urza said, well-reasoned. Harbin replied with a small nod, and Urza picked up the pile of letters and set them back down. Before you return, he said, I was wondering how to continue protecting ourselves from the Kadir and his machines. We have almost emptied the land and have little to show for it. We stand more than ever on the edge of a blade poised between salvation and defeat. Perhaps, I thought, if our devices could develop to work off this meditative energy, this, this mana. Harbin was silent, unsure if his father was truly speaking to him or not. Urza sighed deeply. No, you're right. There's too much unknown, even if there was some grain of truth at the heart of this. It would take years to discover what the ivory-towered scholars had come up with. And all their work is now among the Kadir's plunder. Urza looked up at Harbin, and his face was stern and self-assured as it normally was. But this new discovery, this new land, is an opportunity to finally gain the advantage over my... Uh, over the Kadir. You've done very well, Harbin. 
Thank you, Father, said Harbin. I've already started plans for securing the island. You? said Urza, and blinked. Just because you were fortunate to get past the storms once, I should lead the any expedition that returns there, rejoined Harbin. It is a well-reasoned argument. The younger man folded his arms. Your mother will not hear this, said Urza. Which is why I came to you first, said Harbin, instead of talking to her or to Uncle Tano's. If you say yes, they will not argue with you. Urza pulled the glasses from his face and pinched the brow of his nose. Then you leave me no choice, he said at last. You will lead the expedition to this new land. Harbin had expected more of an argument, or at least more fire in the Lord Protector's voice. Instead, there was just exhaustion. Urza rubbed his chin. Harbin, he said. Yes, sir? Do you dream? asked Urza. The question caught the younger man by surprise. Dream? I suppose everyone dreams. Urza held up his glasses, and the muddied sunlight caught them. I dreamed I had made a set of lenses that let me look into the human heart. To see to the core of its being, I used them to look at my brother. And there was only darkness, only darkness in my brother's heart. Sir, only darkness, repeated Urza and sighed. That is why we're going to bring this new island of yours into the war. Because we need to beat back that darkness. Bunk! Bunk and camel droppings, bellowed Mishra, throwing the book against the far wall of his workshop. The offending tome fluttered end over end before its covers spread like a bird's wings, and it smashed, spine first, against the far wall. Hajar quietly walked over to the jettisoned book, straightened its pages, back into a semblance of order, closed it, and placed it on a growing pile. Most reverend one, said Hajar simply. Even among the dross, there may be accidental gems. Gems? Gems? snapped Mishra. There are no more gems among those convoluted daydreams than there is the grass of the Suwardi marches these days. Hajar started to say, The scholars of the ivory towers held our forces at bay for... But Mishra waved his hand at him. They had stout walls and good weapons. The Kadir rapped out. This mystic effluence had nothing to do with their success. The generals who oversaw the siege and later sacking would disagree, said Hajar. Those generals were looking for an excuse for their own incompetence, snarled Mishra. They found it in the nonsense of those scholars. A dragon engine goes missing, and they blame witches and pixies. He might have said more, but his words were already being garbled by the phlegm in his throat. The artifice Kadir of the Falaji Empire bent almost double in a long, wheezing fit of coughing. Hajar waited for the attack to abate. Mishra had grown heavy over the years. Sometimes it hurt his lungs to breathe. The thick, yellowing smoke that hung night and day over Tamakul did little to abate his illness. Hajar had recommended Mishra retreat to clearer desert air, but as in most matters these days, the bodyguard's advice was ignored. The fit was a short one, and Mishra pulled a silk scarf from his pocket to wipe the sprayed spittle from his lips. Scholars, he snarled, picking up where he left off. Mystic energy within the land itself? Tapping into the energy through memorization and meditation? Hockham! We drove the charlatans out of Zegon, and they all fled to Teresia, and I thought there was knowledge there, Hajar said. Even among the dross there is more dross! shouted Mishra. There is no more truth in those books than there is in the true sight of old Falaji wise woman sitting in a square trading rose-colored visions for brass coins. Hajar stiffened at the slur against the Falaji, but Mishra ignored it. 
I hoped there would be some great weapons, some master artifice that could finally defeat my brother, he wheezed. But all there is is campfire tales and petty mystics. <laughs> As a coughing fit rose to his lungs and Hajar walked over and stoked the coals, then poured a ladle of water over red-hot embers, heat and steam seemed to help his most reverend one's breathing. Mishra needed something to help him, and Hajar had hoped it would be among the books looted from Teresia City's ivory towers. Hajar believed the generals when they said the scholars had some sort of rocky powers that allowed them to defeat the dragon engines and transmigrants and to keep the Falaji at bay for so long. As Mishra searched, the empire crumbled. They were reduced in the east to skirmishing and petty raids across the Kerr ridges, and the South Yosha was a lawless frontier, at least those parts that had not been turned to glass by Mishra's inventions. The descendants of the groundbreakers, the Armageddon clocks, had fused huge sections of the land to black glass, denying the enemy any use of it. Elsewhere, huge plows churned through the dying land in desperate attempts to pull something useful from the earth's bosom. To the west was untamed and barren wilderness, already plundered to keep the war machines going. The pieces were beginning to fall apart now. There was civil war in conquered Almaz and revolution in Sarinth. Many of the tribes of the Falaji were now raiding fellow tribesmen, and discipline was breaking down. Ashnod, gone these many years, was to blame, Hajar felt. Without her to argue and plot, without her for the generals and war captains to fear and conspire against, the various factions within the empire were turning against each other. Urza was the continual enemy, but he was far away. It was Ashnod everyone hated and feared. She had been spotted in Sumafa, said one report. No, in the Kolkagon Mountains, said another. No, she was seen in Yosha and was going to sell her secrets to Urza, said a third. Nay, said a fourth, she was dead from her own diabolical devices. Whatever the truth, Hajar knew the empire suffered without her. Mishra's coughing fit subsided and the Kadir again dabbed at the corners of his mouth with his kerchief, an automatic gesture these days. It is hard for you to understand, Hajar, but know that all my devices are rooted in some basic principles. If you insist, Motpusant One, said Hajar. And this... Mishra motioned at the ever-growing pile of books. This school of fools acts as if those basic principles do not exist. You don't need wings to fly or a transmigrant to build an army. All you need is thought and land, and you can wish things into being. He slapped another book, and a fountain of dust shot out from between its covers. Pah! Mishra raised his kerchief to his mouth and retreated to his throne. He lowered his large bulk into the chair and said, Call for the Gixons. Hajar bowed but did not move. The Gixons? They've been playing with Ashnod's work for years, snapped Mishra. Perhaps they have some trick I can use against my brother. With respect, most honorable one, said Hajar. There are those who say you rely on the Gixons far too much. Mishra's forehead creased and he growled, There are those who say I rely on you too much, Azar. Now fetch me those accursed priests. Within the hour, three of the priests were brought before Mishra. Hajar had not liked the priests when they first arrived, and he liked them less with every passing year. They had slowly infiltrated the bureaucracy that made themselves invaluable to the empire. Since Ashnod's desertion, no mind that she had been banished, if she had been loyal, she would have been remained, they had taken over that woman's laboratories and slaughterhouses, and they had taken over Mishra's own mild attempts at training young Falaji in artifice, turning the schools into a mere extensions of their priesthood. A pair of young Falaji men accompanied the head priest as they approached the throne. Perhaps the Gixians saw this as tribute to Mishra, 
but Ajar thought of it as an abomination. These young men should have been warriors. Instead, they were chanters with a foreign religion. Worse yet, within the last ten years of the Brotherhood of Gix, had taken to modifying their own bodies in the worship of machine. Flesh was woven with links of chain and metal scales, and even limbs were replaced with clunky mechanical devices. They mutilated themselves and declared themselves more holy for their efforts. The lead priest was such an abomination. He had no eyes, rather a plate of curved metal covered his eye sockets, polished to a mirror's brightness. The plate had been bolted to the priest's face at the temples, and occasionally a trickle of blood would drip down alongside one of the bolts. The priest was dressed in heavy robes, and Hajar wondered what other parts of his body he had modified in the name of his machine god. Hajar suppressed a shudder and decided he did not want to know. The lead priest bowed, the two Falaji acolytes following his motions like puppets on a string. Most wise, most thoughtful, most powerful Kadir, said the lead Gixian. We offer whatever help we may give in your illustrious name. Mishra rested both hands on his belly, templing his fingers and tapping them softly. He said to see a city held great knowledge. The priest bowed again. That is so. My fellow brothers walked among their scholars and learned much. Mishra continued. I have reviewed much of the material that we have recovered and determined it to be without merit. Again the priest bowed. If that is what you determined, that must be correct, he said smoothly. Hajar wondered what that man's spine did not snap from changing opinion so quickly. Yet you said they had great power, said Mishra, yet another bow. They may have hidden their truth strengths from us or cloaked them in mysticism, assuming that we would respect their beliefs, said the priest. He cocked his steel-shod head and added, We are industrious, but not all-seeing. But we have nothing useful from Teresia City save the traditional plunder, said Mishra, his voice sounding thick again as the fluids began to settle in his lungs. Hajar automatically moved to the hot coals and scooped another ladle of water onto him. Mishra began another long cough, and the priests and Hajar waited for him to finish. Most illustrious one, said the lead priest, there are some things we have to learn. Such as, prompted Mishra, mysteries of the human body, said the mirror-plated Gixion. We have studied much of Ashnot's work, and we believe that we have... He paused for a moment, then continued. Improved it. Mishra leaned forward now, his bulk shifting beneath him. Improved it how? Ashnan thought the body as a resource, said the Gixion. We believe the body is a machine and should be able to improve like a machine, thereby made more holy and more powerful. More powerful? rasped Mishra. How can it be used as a weapon? The lead priest turned toward Hajar, though how the monk could see without his eyes confounded the older Falaji. We can talk to you of this, said the Gixion. Away from prying ears. Mishra nodded. Hajar, leave us! Hajar set down the ladle. Most reverend one, I... I said leave us! Said Mishra again. I want to hear what the good monks have to say of the matter. Away from prying ears! <laughs> Hajar started to argue, then stopped. He nodded, bowed deeply, and left the room, pulling the ornate doors shut behind him. Now, said Mishra, smiling and leaning forward toward three monks. Tell me more.